the opportunity to pray, to come to you in prayer anytime, to find grace and mercy. We know that Jesus himself sits at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. The Spirit intercedes for us also when when we're hurting, when we groan in pain. We ask that that we would, all of us, learn more and more to just depend on you, to turn to you rather than turning to other things, to trust that that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you are good amid all the bad. Father, we pray for those who are sick, those who are dealing with some very serious issues. Uh, We ask that you would uh, be near to them. We thank you for the healing that uh, you are working in the lives of those mentioned. Uh, we, We lift up baby Bryn to you and Mark and Morgan ask that you uh, continue to be with them and to speed their recovery so that they can come home and uh, we'll give you all the praise and glory for what you do in the lives of those uh, we love and the lives of those connected to our church family and our community. We ask now that you would be with us as we open your book and study your word as we turn to this familiar psalm. We ask that you would give us eyes to see what we need. For the other churches in town, for our brothers and sisters that are gathered in various places, we ask your blessing upon them that they would, as they worship you, grow closer and closer in relationship to you and to your son. We thank you. We love you. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Little kids with Miss Debbie, you can head on out. Bigger. Yeah. Oh. Okay. That's right. Uh, Richard and... Okay. Just Debbie teaching today. So. Uh, Richard and Karen bought some bracelets for everyone, and they're, they're bracelets that, if you wear it, will probably start a conversation, um, which is kind of the whole idea. So... It's nothing overt, nothing you'll get in trouble for wearing, probably, but just intriguing enough that it'll make you go, make someone who sees it go, uh, well, what is that? And then there's your opening. So thank you, Richard and Karen, for those, and try it out. I'll be, I'll be anxious to, to hear how many conversations were started uh, because of that. So, Well, it, it's very familiar. You know it well. You, you know it even if you don't think you know it. Uh, You've heard the words of Psalm 22, at least some of the words, several times. And I think this is a fitting way to end our summer in the Psalms, to exalt in our God and in our Savior once more. Psalm 22 speaks of David, the, the king of Israel, David's own personal distress and God's deliverance of David from his distress. It's a from the title we see it it is a psalm of David. Written in the time of David, an expression of David's faith in God in the middle of what he's facing, whatever it might be, it's obviously something serious. He's facing silence and scorn and defeat. Psalm 22 is about David, his experiences, his faith. And yet, Psalm 22 prophetically describes in remarkable detail the suffering, the crucifixion, 
and the resurrection of Jesus. The language that David uses here was no doubt prompted by and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Only this psalm's inspiration could account for the fact that it spans 1,000 years from the time of David to the time of Jesus, and yet perfectly describes the experiences of Jesus Christ. So initially, as David's writing this psalm, this song, it describes his own situation, his own suffering, his own deliverance. But it's impossible, impossible for us with Christian eyes to read this psalm and not see that it speaks about Jesus. It's impossible for us to read this psalm and not see Jesus and all that he's done for us. As we read Psalm 22, we have to keep in mind that that this applies to David in the time that David was writing, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this also perfectly describes and details what Jesus went through on the cross. What I want for us this morning is simple. I want for us to reflect, to meditate upon, to set our minds upon the cross of Christ, that old rugged cross, that symbol of suffering and shame, and all that the cross of Christ means for us. Pretty simple. Look with me at the beginning of Psalm 22, just verses 1 and 2 for now. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. The first verse of this psalm was spoken by Jesus on the cross. I told you it was familiar to you. It's likely the best-known phrase from this psalm simply because Jesus spoke it and because Jesus felt it. Jesus spoke these words himself. We hear him speaking these words. Both Matthew and Mark record the words of this psalm on the lips of Jesus in Jesus' native Aramaic. And this is for our benefit that Matthew and Mark do this, so that we hear it as Jesus would have said it, the exact words that Jesus spoke. And as we hear it exactly as Jesus spoke it, we feel the weight of these words as they drip from his mouth. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. We hear it, we feel it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus was forsaken by God for us. This forsakenness cannot mean, it cannot mean, that the eternal communion between Father, Son, and Spirit was broken. God cannot cease to be triune, three in one. Neither does this forsakenness mean that the Father ceased to love the Son, especially not here, not now. Nor does this forsakenness mean that the Holy Spirit ceased to minister to the Son. These words are not a cry of despair on Jesus' part. Despair would have been sin. Even in the darkness, God was still for Jesus, my God. My God, my God. And though there was no sign of God, the pain obscured the promises. Somewhere in the depths of Jesus' soul remained the assurance that God was holding him. This was this is true. What was true of Abraham is truer still of Jesus, where it says of Abraham, against all hope, in hope he believed. There is much that this forsaking is not, 
And yet this is a real forsaking. Jesus didn't merely feel forsaken. He was forsaken. And not only by his disciples who scatter, but by God himself. It was God himself. It was God the Father who had delivered Jesus, handed Jesus over to Judas, to the Jews, to Pilate, and finally to the cross itself. And on that cross, when Jesus cried, God had closed his ears. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. The crowd had not stopped heckling. The the demons had not stopped taunting. The pain had not ended. This time, no word came from the heavens to remind Jesus that he was God's son, greatly loved. No dove came down to assure him of the Spirit's presence and ministry. No angel came to strengthen Jesus. No redeemed sinner bowed to thank Jesus. In the anguish of Gethsemane, as Jesus begged his father to take the cup from him, Jesus called his father there in the garden before the crucifixion. He called his father Abba, the most personal of all Aramaic words. But on the cross, Jesus doesn't refer to God as Abba. He refers to God simply as God, El. Like Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah, Jesus and his father Abba had gone up to Calvary together, but now Abba is not here. Only God, only El is there. God Almighty, God All Holy. And Jesus is before El, not now as his beloved son. Jesus stands before El as the sin of the world. That's his identity. Jesus is on the cross, the sin of the world. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus could not sin, never thought about sinning, never considered sinning, and never was a sinner. And yet here he is, the sin bearer. Jesus is on the cross, sin, condemned to bear its curse. And Jesus has no cover. No one can serve as advocate. Nothing can be offered as Jesus' punishment. Jesus has to bear all of it. And God, El, cannot, will not spare him until the ransom is paid in full. This is the picture of the cross, Psalm 22. The anguish and the tension between the sin-bearing son and his heavenly father. A, A whirlwind of sin at its most dreadful God forsaken by God. Never before had anything come between Jesus and his father. But now the sin of the whole world has come between them. And Jesus is caught in this terrible curse. It's not that Abba is not there, but that he is there as the judge of all the earth. Who could not, would not spare even his own son. Jesus stands where no one stood before and where no one has stood since. Enduring at one tiny point in space and one tiny moment in time. Everything, all that sin deserved. Jesus was forsaken by God for us. If this isn't our understanding of the cross of Christ, then we haven't fully grasped what Jesus has done for us. If we don't get this, if we miss this, that Jesus, the sin offering, stood before the holy and just God forsaken by his Father for us, well, if we don't get that, then we've missed it all. Jesus forsaken by God for us. 
Skip down to verse 6. Hear these words of David and then of Jesus. But I am a worm, not a human being. I am scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made my made me feel secure on my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help me. Many bulls surround me. The strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My tongue is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Not only was Jesus forsaken by God for us, but Jesus endured the pain and the suffering that we should have endured. People love to ask this question. They love to ask, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, let me tell you, that has happened exactly once. Bad things, truly bad things happened to Jesus, the only good person in history. And this happened because he took our place. And during the shame and the punishment and the suffering and the mocking and the scoffing and the insulting that we, that you and I deserve. He endured that for us. It takes no imagination at all to see the suffering and anguish of Jesus in the words of the 22nd Psalm. In fact, the very gestures and words of verses 7 and 8 were reproduced at Calvary. All who see me mock me. Think about Jesus on the cross, the mockery. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. They laugh at him. He he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord save him. If he can, let him rescue him since he delights in him. Everything from the mocking and the insults hurled at him to the animal attacks of the men he came to save to the dry mouth of the creator who had to ask for a drink to the staring and the gloating of the crowd to the centurions dividing his clothing, casting lots for his garment. The words of the 22nd Psalm express as as good as words can the suffering and the pain that Jesus endured, experienced in our place, in our place, as our representative, as our substitute. Imagine that you live in a cardboard box, not the nice, fancy refrigerator box cardboard, but the thin, real flimsy, cheap cardboard, your regular run-of-the-mill cardboard. Your cheap cardboard house is, is so small, you don't even have room to stretch out your legs completely to sleep. You live in this cardboard box, you don't have a job, you don't have any money, any food, you have to forage for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and midnight snacks. The only water you have is the rainwater that drips through your corrugated roof. In essence, you have nothing. Imagine. And then there's a a wrap on the cardboard. You don't have a doorbell. He has to knock. And you, you fold open your front door, and there before you is... Warren Buffett, the billionaire. He's come to exchange lives with you. You get his bill, all of his companies, his mansions, his cars, and he's going to live in your flimsy, cheap cardboard shack. 
He hands you the titles and the deeds to everything he has. He gives you the keys and the fobs to all that he owns. He signs over all of his investments, his stocks, his billions. You get what he has, his $79.5 billion, and he's going to take what you have. He trades places with you. He exchanges stations in life with you. Your situations, your cardboard house living situation is now exchanged with Warren Buffett. Can you, can you even imagine another person switching places with you and willingly that they of their own volition jumped at the chance to exchange their lofty position with your lowly estate? This type of thing doesn't happen. Don't expect Buffett to show up on your doorstep. It doesn't happen. And yet this exact exchange happened to a much greater degree. Jesus, the perfect son of God, spotless, glorious, worthy of honor and praise, holy and righteous, came to us willingly and swapped places with us. He, the gracious and perfect God-man, handed us his perfect righteousness in exchange for our own completely filthy, worthless sin-stained record. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took upon himself the suffering, the pain, the ridicule, the mockery, the agony that we deserved, and we get off scot-free, unpunished, right? It's true, that's true, but it's even better than that. We're not just unpunished, we're cleansed. Our scarlet sins are washed white, whiter than snow. Jesus takes the pain and the suffering that we deserve, and we are in him clothed with his perfect righteousness. Everything he has imputed to us. That's better than merely going unpunished. Unpunished would be great, but now we have blessing where there was once only curse. That should blow our minds. Isaiah prophesied long before Jesus came to the scene this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on Jesus the sin of us all. Jesus endured the pain and suffering we should have endured. Please realize Psalm 22 isn't just about the forsakenness and the suffering of Jesus on the cross. It's not all silence and scorn and defeat. There's Good news, there's a great deal of faith even expressed in Psalm 22. Notice with me, there are three sections of faith, and each one comes after forsakenness, after scorn, after brutality. Each section, as we read through this, begins with the words, yet you, or but you, uh, tipping us off. It was nice of David to write this in this way. After the cry of forsakenness in verses 1 and 2, David writes this, in verses three and five, three through five, yet you, 
are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel, and you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Then after the description of scorn come verses 9 through 11. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me feel secure on my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Do not be far from me. The trouble is near. There's no one to help. After the detailing of brutality come verses 19 through 21. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Just like David, Jesus, the forsaken, scorned, and brutalized one, maintained faith in God who had always been and will always be and was at that moment the delivering and non-disappointing God. Jesus trusted that his father would save him. Deliver him, rescue him. Jesus trusted that God would answer him, that God wasn't far off from him, that God would not abandon him. For Jesus believed this. I love that Jesus quoted the first verse of Psalm 22 on that good, good Friday those many years ago. Let me tell you why. What do we think Jesus was doing in quoting Psalm 22? What was he after? Do we think he was merely quoting David in his anguish? Were these just good words to speak at this terrible moment? Or was Jesus, by quoting the first verse of Psalm 22, making a reference to all of it, to the whole psalm? I believe that Jesus was up to something when he uttered, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've shared this theory with you before. By using the first words of this psalm, Jesus was calling our attention to all of it. Like a famous line from the book, Or from a book. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Makes us think of the whole book. Or should. Or a well-known line from a movie. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. Right? We think of the whole movie. I don't believe for a second that Jesus was just using, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a standalone line. I don't. I believe Jesus was calling attention to the entirety of Psalm 22. With its forsakenness, yes. With its scorn, yes. Its brutality, yeah. But Jesus was also calling attention to the faith in Psalm 22 and to the victory. You see, on the cross, Jesus was forsaken and Jesus suffered in our place, but that's not the end of the story. It's not. Jesus finished the task set before him. Verse 22 of Psalm 22, easy to remember, Psalm 22, 22, is the turning point in the psalm. From despair to victory, it's a call to worship, a promise to declare the name of the Lord and praise him in the midst of the assembly. It's a call for the people of God to praise and honor and revere the Lord. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Why this shift in mood at verse 22? Psalm 22 is almost like two different psalms. There's one dark and depressing, and the the other is joyous and victorious. Why the shift? What has happened? 
What's the cause of praise? It's right here in verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. God has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. You see, Jesus hasn't been cast off forever. God the Father has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. God the Father has not hidden forever his face from Jesus, but he's listened. He's listened to his cry for help. How do we know this? What happened as evidence of verse 24 in the life of Jesus? Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't. In the face of the darkness of Golgotha, there shines an empty tomb and an occupied throne. The resurrection and ascension are God's answer to the forsaken Messiah. God the Father looked with favor upon the Son's perfect and complete sacrifice. He paid the price for our sins once and for all. And when he had, Jesus sets down. He takes a seat at the right hand of God where he sits at this very moment interceding for you. The resurrection and the ascension are proof positive that Jesus' work on the cross was the full, complete, perfect answer to our sin. Jesus' death provided unfettered access to the Father, reconciling us to him. Once his enemies, we are now seated at his table by and because of the Son's sacrifice. What do we do with this good news? What do we do with it? We don't sit on it. We don't hide it under a bushel. No, we share the good news that Jesus was forsaken for us, that he suffered and endured the pain as our substitute, and that he has now gloriously, wondrously finished the task before him. We don't keep this to ourselves. How in the world could we keep this to ourselves? We invite everyone, all the poor and powerless, everyone, all the rich and mighty, everyone, into the great assembly to hear what God has done. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. We sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for us. And this will continue, the psalmist says, from generation to generation to generation. This will and it must continue. This is our news to share just as Jesus tasked us when he said, Therefore go and make disciples, make disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The news we possess, this news, is the best news in the wide world, that Jesus has come, taking our place, bearing our sin and our shame, and when he paid the price that we should have paid, he declared, it's finished. It's finished. And he breathed his last, and he won the victory over sin and death. The psalm that begins with a cry of forsakenness now ends with a declaration not far removed from what Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished. 
Verse 30 and 31 say posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He's done it. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, has accomplished for us all that needs to be accomplished. He's finished what was previously unfinished. He willingly took upon himself the forsaken by God's state and gifted us with the right with God state. You realize that? You realize that exchange? Before Christ, forsaken by God was your lot. And now after Christ, he takes that from you and says, you are right with God if you were in a relationship with me. Imagine, unbelievable. What an amazing lopsided exchange. Jesus gets all of our crap, sin, ugliness, and we get everything he has. This begs a response. It just does. If you're not a Christian and the Lord is calling you today, admit that you are a sinner and repent. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who perfectly, completely paid the price for your sin. And then confess your faith to the believers, to the assembly. And if you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, your response, you have two of them. Take a deep breath and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Stop your striving and your ceasing to make yourself better with God. To make yourself more acceptable to him. Because Jesus has done that. You cannot be any better with God than you are in Christ. He has done everything you need to do. So everyone, every Christ follower in here with me, take a deep breath. And just rest in the finished work of Christ and rest for just a few more minutes and then go and tell the world what he has done for you. Tell everyone you encounter what Jesus has done and tell them he has done it. Let's pray.
Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Love you all.